Take your Bibles now, if you will, and open back to the book of Joshua, and let's continue our study of the book of Joshua. <clears throat> we come to a section in Joshua that's uh, kind of rough sledding, so um, stay with me as I hop around in three different chapters. Um, I'll warn you as we move. First, chapter 15, verses 1 through 6, Joshua 15, 1 through 6. The allotment of the tribe of the people of Judah, according to their clans, reached southward to the boundary of Edom, to the wilderness of Zin at the farthest south. And their south boundary ran from the end of the Salt Sea, from the bay that faces southward. It goes out southward of the ascent of Akrabim, passes along to Zin, and goes up south of Kadesh Barnea, along by Hezron, up to Ader, turns about to Karka, passes along to Asmon, goes out by the brook of Egypt, And comes to its end at the sea. This shall be your south boundary. And the east boundary is the salt sea to the uh, the mouth of the Jordan. And the boundary of the north side runs from the bay of the sea at the mouth of the Jordan. And the boundary goes up to Beth Hogla and passes along north to Beth Arabah. And the boundary goes up to the stone of Bohan, the son of Reuben. Are you moved yet? Go to chapter 16. Let me read you just one verse out of chapter 16, verse 10. However, they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but have been made to do forced labor. Now chapter 17, verse 3. Now, Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, had no sons, but only daughters. And these are the names of their daughters, Malah, Noah, Hoglah, Milcah, and Tirzah. They approached Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the leaders and said, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance along with our brothers. So according to the mouth of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among the brothers of their father. Thus there fell to Manasseh ten portions besides the land of Gilead and Bashan, which is on the other side of the Jordan, because the daughters of Manasseh received an inheritance along with his sons. The land of Gilead was allotted to the rest of the people of Manasseh. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, that endures forever. Hey guys, I don't know how you study the Bible. I, I, you know, I don't know what the kind of approach you use, but if you've ever studied the book of Joshua and, um, you come to chapters 15, 16, and 17 and you conclude that this is nothing but a tedious, detailed, laborious description of a boundary, then you got it right. I understand. Uh, let, let me read you a, a, a portion of this text that I didn't read you. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, I'd love for you to see it. It's, in, it's uh, chapter 15, verse 55. 1555. I'm going to read that to you. It goes like this. Mayon, Carmel, Ziph, Zuta. That's the verse. <laughs> now, there's not a whole lot of warm devotional thoughts in verse 55. Wouldn't you agree? Um, I mean, I don't know how many of you can be moved by hearing the names of four different cities. 
But those four cities are included in the, the allotment to the tribe of Judah. That's what that is. But even though there might not be warm devotional thoughts in verse 55, there are some devotional redemptive thoughts in this section of the, of the scriptures, as you might well expect there to be. There, there, there are things in this section, which is nothing more than a geography lesson, that are, that are, that we need to take note of, that are, that I hope will be profitable for us. Um, they're, they're all a part of this great redemptive story or this, this story of redemption that's included in every book of the Bible, guys. But what I want to do is try and point out three or four of the, of the little, I hate this word, nuggets that are, that are found within this, this otherwise a geography lesson. Okay? So that's what we're doing this morning. First of all, I want to start out with chapter 15. Um, you understand that chapter 15, what I read you, and, and I did that on purpose, guys. I mean, I read those six verses. They weren't easy to read, but I, I, I had to give you a taste of it. Um, what you get in chapter 15 is a detailed, long, tedious description of the land that was allotted to the tribe of Judah in the promised land. You got that, didn't you? And by the way, it goes on from where I stopped. Now, here's the question that I want you to, I want to address. Why is it that Judah comes first? Why is it that Judah gets the first allotment? Why why does he receive his first uh, in, in, in the promised land? And by the way, why does he get the biggest, the biggest portion of the whole promised land? Well, first of all, um, it wasn't because he was the firstborn. You know that 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 um, uh, the eldest son thing. The, they're called the laws of primogenitor. It wasn't that because he wasn't the firstborn. Reuben was the firstborn, but now Reuben blew it with his daddy's concubine. You may remember that. That's recorded in Genesis thirty-five. You can look at that later. But Judah was the no. He wasn't the secondborn either. Well, Judah was the no. He wasn't the thirdborn either. He was the fourthborn. All right, so it, why is it that he gets the first pick of the litter? Um, was it because he was firstborn? Uh, nor was it because Joshua, the leader of the whole outfit, was from the tribe of Judah. He wasn't. Joshua was, Joshua was, Joshua, it's the microphone. Joshua was from Ephraim. So it wasn't because Joshua was doing it. And it certainly wasn't because Joshua was a good boy. We know better. In fact, we've looked at his story a couple of times. I won't, I won't bore you with it again. It's in Genesis 38, but it's that story about him wanting to burn his daughter-in-law at the stake because of something that he did. You remember that? It's an ugly story. It's, it's Genesis 38. Take a look. It wasn't because Judah was a good boy. Then why was it? Why was it that Judah got the pick of the litter? Why was he first in terms of the allotment? I'm going to answer that in just a second, but I want to show it to you again. In these chapters that I that I just read, at 16 and 17. Go over to chapter 16, and you'll notice that after Judah comes the allotment of the people of Joseph. Now, by the way, look at verse 4. The people of Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim. Now, so right after Judah gets his land described, next up is the people of Joseph. And Joseph had two sons. Remember who Joseph was, don't you? Joseph was the, the brother that got sold into slavery and sent down to Egypt. 
And because of the, the, the famine, the seven years of plenty and the seven years of, of uh, famine, Joseph arose in the ranks, became the right-hand man of Pharaoh. Remember that? That's Joseph. Well, Joseph has two sons. Now, when it gets, when the, the text gets ready or the narrator gets ready to explain their allotment, he starts with Ephraim, not Manasseh. Uh, it starts in uh, verse 6, uh, verse 5. Now, I, I say that because Ephraim is not the firstborn. He's the secondborn. Why do they start with the secondborn and Manasseh, the firstborn, coming after that? Why does the narrator do that? Well, guys, there's there's an answer to that story, uh, answer to that question. And, and if you've never seen it, it's a great little story. Uh, this is one I don't think you're, you're is quite familiar with. It's in Genesis 48. You might want to flip over there and, and let me tell you that story. Um, uh, you may, I'm not sure you're familiar with it, but let, let me just rehearse it briefly. Gang, Joseph has brought his family all down. You know, Jacob, the father, the patriarch, and all his 12 brothers, 11 brothers, and all those guys are living in Egypt. This is Genesis 48. You'll find this story. Um, Jacob, the father, is about to die. You know what? I got to do this out here so that you can understand this. Um, Jacob, the father, is about to die. All right? So Joseph, the, uh, you know, the one that's leading Egypt, brings his two sons to his father to receive the patriarchal blessing. He brings Ephraim and Manasseh to Jacob. Okay? So when Jacob is about to distribute this patriarchal blessing, don't get all these J's mixed up. Joseph, the daddy of Ephraim and Manasseh, Jacob the, the grandfather, Joseph takes his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and puts them opposite his father, Jacob, and he takes Manasseh, the oldest, and puts him opposite the right hand of Jacob. It's all in verse chapter 48. You can check me out. He then takes Ephraim, the secondborn, and puts him opposite the left hand of Jacob, his father. That's the way it's supposed to go. You know, that's the whole laws of primogenitor, ladies and gentlemen. The eldest son thing. So when Jacob gets ready to pronounce that blessing, Jacob, the grandfather, crosses his arms. And he puts his right arm on the younger Ephraim. And his left hand on the older Manasseh. Joseph, no, Joseph the father, recognizes that that's wrong, according to the laws of primogenitor. And he says, Daddy, mm -mm, mm -mm, you, you, uh, you got it wrong, you got it wrong. And he tries to reverse his hands. And Jacob says, leave me alone. My hands know what they're doing. And the text says in verse 20, 48, 20. And thus Jacob made Ephraim the younger head of, or made Manasseh the older to serve Ephraim the younger.
So when we come to Joshua 16, that story is being played out in the distribution of land. The younger is getting his property first ahead of his older brother. Now, guys, why is all that? You see it twice. You see it in Judah. He wasn't the firstborn. You see it in Manasseh and Ephraim. Ephraim wasn't the firstborn. What's going on here? Well, here's the answer, ladies and gentlemen, to both of those stories, but both of those questions. All of this is a reminder of how God works. By that I mean this, guys. It's a reminder that God never operates according to the conventions of men. It's, it's a, it's an illustration of how he overthrows the way that humans think things ought to be. It's a, it's a reminder that God is never the prisoner of what man thinks is normal. That God operates counterintuitively. That he's, that he does opposite to what we think. Hey guys, um, you've heard of this before. I mean, this is familiar, but Paul says the same thing. Listen to this. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. You know why he did that? Because God doesn't operate the way we think he ought to operate. Ladies and gentlemen, left to ourselves, we would design a religion where God saves the rich and the beautiful and the smart and the good. And then he would damn all the bad people. And there's a couple of problems with that, ladies and gentlemen. First of all, there are no good people. No, not one. It says Paul in Romans 3. The other problem with it is, guys, it's not the way God works. He always works counterintuitively. If you think, ladies and gentlemen, that you have lived a good life, And because you have, God is going to honor you with an eternity of felicity and bliss because you've been a good boy or girl. Then you missed it. That's not the way. Guys, guys, what you're getting here in this little section of the book of Joshua is a statement that Judah is going to have royal primacy not because of birth, not because of favoritism, not because of virtue, but simply because 
God is sovereign and he is not imprisoned to Robert's rules of order. Nor is he imprisoned to Jimmy Young's rules of order. Nor is he imprisoned to your rules of order. Nor is he imprisoned to the culture's rules of order. The way we think he ought to work. It's not the way that he works. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know that you'll ever do this. I don't really think you will. I'm not really, don't even really mean it, but start sharing the gospel today. Just share the gospel to every person you see. I mean, just talk, everybody you see, just tell them about, ask them what they think, how they think they can get into heaven and find out what they say. Because left to ourselves, we're going to create a religion where good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. And I'm here to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that God delights to save people who know they're bad and know they need a savior. Here's the second little lesson I think that's tucked into this section. First of all, let me tell you, it's a, it's a, it's what I call a deadly deviation. It's a deviation from, from God's instructions. One, by the way, which I've already shown you back in chapter 13, chapter 13, 13. But it's in this section again, and I didn't read all of them, so let me show it to you. It's in 1563. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. Chapter 16, verse 10, I did read. But however, they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day. But they have been made to do forced labor. Chapter 17, verses 11 and 12. Uh, 12 and 13. Yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Now when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. So ladies and gentlemen, we saw it one time in 1313. Now here it is again in 1563, 1610, 1712. It's a deadly deviation from the standard, the piece of instruction that God had left them. Now guys, before I... I go further. Let me let me try to correct. I think a, a, a um, mistaken notion, guys. If if you and your understanding of the Bible have thought of the promised land as being a picture of heaven, a type of heaven kind of thing, you know, you cross so get into the promised land. It's it's a picture of heaven. No, ladies and gentlemen, it's not. <laughs> it couldn't be. And here's why. There's enemies in the land. There's enemies in the promised land. All kinds of enemies. So this is not a picture, ladies and gentlemen, of heaven. Let me tell you what it is a picture of. It's a picture of the condition of the soul once it becomes redeemed. It's a statement that says, once you become a Christian... It's not that the battle is over. It's that the battle has just begun. Guys, 
there are three notes. I mean, so if I'm right about that, and I am pretty sure I am, what you have here is a picture of God's people. First of all, there's a little bit of devia- a little bit of difference in all three of these. Over in 1563, it seems like Judah at least tried to kick him out, but failed. In 1610, why the people of Manasseh they didn't even try. And then over here in 17, 12, and 13, um, uh, that was Ephraim didn't even try. Manasseh over here in 1712, it, it looks like they failed once. But then when they got real strong, they decided, nah, what the heck, let's let them live here. I mean, you know, yeah, we're strong enough to get rid of them now, but, I mean, if we get rid of them, uh, who's going to cut our grass? And so they leave them in there so they can have forced labor out of them. All this laxity, all this, this accommodation with enemies... Gang, the point that God was seeking to make, at least part of it, was that if you leave those Baal worshippers in the promised land, all of that Baal worship with its, um, with its sexual enticements, that's going to infect Israel unless you do the most radical surgery to get rid of it. And so a, a compromised Israel, who was at one time able to get rid of them, but decided, nah, what the heck, let's just leave them. It's not that they're unable, they're unwilling to expel all of those enemies uh, at God's direction. They choose to keep them because it furthers their own comforts and their delights and their convenience. And guess what? You go over to the next book, which is the book of Judges, and Israel is now saturated with Baal worship. And it becomes her ruin. Again, And again, and again. Guys, here's the lesson for me and you. How many times have I, how many times have you heard me say this? That sin is our enemy? To toy with it, to accommodate it, to be friendly with it. only endangers my soul. You know, guys, I hope you don't have any enemies among people. I I hope you're liked. But you must have this enemy. Sin. You can never call sin your friend. None of them. They're all enemies. There is no sin that is good for me. 
But you say, well, you know, I just can't help it. You've got to help it. To permit sin, to sanction disobedience, is to invite spiritual ruin. Oh, but it was just a little phone call to her. You say, um, well, I'm, I'm not an alcoholic anymore. Great. Then don't become a workaholic. Because both of those will ruin you. Well, you know, I, I don't lie anymore. Good. But you're prone to gossip. Both of those will ruin you. No sin, ladies and gentlemen. No sin um, is your friend. It's all got to go. Zero tolerance. And that's not because anybody's mean. It's because to make friends with it is to hazard the ruin of your own soul. There's the third thing, and um, and I'll try to go quicker. Um, in the middle of all this story, there's this there's this quaint little story about the five daughters of Zelophead. Um, it has to do with an estate. It has to do with boundaries. It has to do with inheritance, really. And um, the narrator inserts this quaint little story about the five daughters of Zelophead, and he gives her gives their names, <laughs> and those are um, I mean. If, if I ever met a woman with the name of Hogla, um, she could probably beat me up. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't. But anyway, they're all, they're all five of their names are given there. The background of this story, it's, it's pretty simple. It's found for you in Numbers 27. But what happens is the dad, Zelophead, died without any sons. And so they, he had five daughters. And so the five daughters come to Moses and says, and say, Moses, um, you know, don't give our inheritance to the nearest male relative. Give it to us. And so Moses goes to God and God says, yep, they're right. Give it to them. So then they get into the promised land and they come back to the Eliezer, the priest, and Joshua, the, the leader of the bunch, and say, hey, listen, do you remember what God said? God said, give it to us, not anybody else. It's ours. And it, did you notice in there how immediately, how immediately Joshua and, and, and Eliezer said, that's what God said. That's what we're doing. That's pretty impressive in and of itself. That's what God said. That's what we're doing. God settled it by saying it. That was enough for them. Is it enough for us? I had somebody say to me recently, They don't live in the city, by the way, so. They were gonna, he was gonna move in with his uh, girlfriend. Or the girlfriend's gonna move in with him, I don't know which one. He said, It's okay. We're engaged. And I said, Wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> Tell me, 
What did God say about that? <clears throat> Jimmy, nobody's going to get hurt with a little watching me, me watching a little porn in my hotel room. What, 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 did, what, what did God say about that? Is it enough? Ah, the government of ours, that uh, Democrats, they waste so much money up there. My goodness, they're never going to miss a few bucks that I hide from them. Wait, 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 wait. What did God say? Is it enough? Ladies and gentlemen, is it enough for us? It was for these folks. Is it enough that God has spoken and that's enough? If he has, the matter is settled. There's one more thing that I want you to say about this story, and, and it's really fun to tell you about it. And then we're done. Um... There's a whole nother level to this story about the five daughters of Zelophead. Um, without this story, if, 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 if this was somehow expunged from the history of Israel, without this story, then Jesus Christ has real problems. <laughs> Let me explain them to you. Um, guys, do you know the book of Matthew differs a great deal from the book of, say, Luke? In the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Well, Luke is a Gentile. He's a physician. He writes, uh, you know, differently than does Matthew. Um, Matthew, one of his primary goals with the entire book of Matthew is to prove to his Jewish audience that Jesus of Nazareth is their Messiah. The long-expected, long-awaited Messiah, Jesus, this carpenter kid from Nazareth, that's him. And he is this great descendant of David's that we have been praying for, for lo these many centuries. Our Messiah has arrived and there he goes. That's him. He has a right to the throne of David. That's Matthew's purpose. But ladies and gentlemen, if this story about these five daughters is not here... Matthew is wrong. <laughs> Gang, um, Jesus is claiming that he is the descendant of David who is the inheritor of the throne of David. Okay? But that inheritance to the throne of David couldn't come through Joseph. Because Joseph was not his father. But could Jesus stake a claim to that inheritance through his mother? Not if a woman could not inherit or, or gain an inheritance. Which is what this story establishes. But for this remarkable little story about five named daughters of Zelophea. 
It would have been impossible for Jesus to stake the claim to be the rightful king of the Jews without this story, without this provision. The virgin birth, which we believe, the virgin birth in itself would have barred Jesus from the throne of David because... Jesus has no earthly father, but this out-of-the-way little throwaway story here in Joshua, tucked into boundary lessons in Joshua 17, removes all of the difficulty because it, it silences any possible objection that might be raised by an offended Jewish audience who said, oh, oh, okay, um, I hear what you're saying there, Matthew. I hear what you're saying, yes sir, that that Jesus was born of a virgin. We got it. Then, then Matthew, he couldn't inherit the throne of David. And Matthew could say, oh yes he could. Because of the principle established by a little story in Joshua 17 concerning five daughters of Zelophehad who established the fact that you could gain an inheritance through your mother. Is that not neat? Jesus Christ, according to the flesh, had legal title to inherit, to inherit the throne of David because of this little story in Joshua 17 that oftentimes puts us to sleep when we read it. Which, ladies and gentlemen, is just one more reason for me to say that Jesus Christ is the hero of every story. Every Old Testament story points us to Christ. He's the centerpiece. We stand or fall based on our relationship to Him. With Him we're saved. Without Him we're lost. It is always, only, solely, fully, passionately, uncompromisingly, wholeheartedly, unwaveringly, and continually all about Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Our Father, we glory in your word. We glory in its, its beauty, its, its, its power to change, its power to comfort, its power to heal, its power to convict. I pray, O oh God, that all or some of that has gone on in the souls of each of us as we seek to grow more into the likeness of Jesus Christ, who is indeed the hero of every story. He is the hero of my story. He is the hero of so many stories seated here this morning. 
But, oh God, if he has not yet been made Christ, Savior and Lord of some life that is here, would you cause them to see, open their eyes to see that without him, we will be damned. But with him, we will be saved. Would you do that, Father? Not so that we can point to a statistic, but so that the kingdom of Jesus Christ can be advanced and enlarged. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name.